coming at you from New York City. It's The Real Deal Podcast with your host, Ian Phillips. Welcome to The Real Deal Podcast. My name is Ian Phillips. How are you? What the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? Uh, I can't say that. Uh, I don't... Just giving uh, Mark Marin another reason to sue me. Come on our show, Mark. Just kidding. You have no idea who I am. Um, this is my second week. Um, <laughs> flying solo here. I hope... Whoever, if you, if any of you listened to the last show, I'll thank you, and I hope you liked it. And I know it's a little weird that it's just me, and I'm figuring it out, just like a lot of things. I'm trying to figure it out, make this thing better and more listenable. Um, anyway, <laughs> I have a little cough, which means um, I might be the first person to uh, die of Ebola on air. So uh, that would definitely get me some listens. Um Unfortunately, that would mean I would also be dead, but hey, posthumous legacy, it's all that matters. Uh, hope you're all doing well. I'm filled with Yom Kippur leftovers right now, and uh, let's get this show started. Uh, so this week, uh, a little later in the show, we're going, I'm going, this is a collective experience, everyone, but anyway, I'm going to be reviewing uh, David Fincher's Gone Girl. Um... A few other things we'll discuss before then. Um, so, I don't know if you've seen Gone Girl or read Gone Girl or read about Gone Girl or watched a trailer for Gone Girl. But there's a lot of it is kind of about public appearances. And the idea that we don't really know who we are. I've always sort of been interested in the idea of public figures and the idea that like people who very much live in public and you see on TV or in movies or on the radio all the time, like, that they have a very calculated public image that usually they have to make sure to maintain all the time. There's several examples. Well, anyone can be like that. Well, Gone Girls make me think about that. So there was two that came. I was thinking about kind of public figures and people whose Im- – they're very particular about their image. Two people who are pretty relevant in the news came to mind, Lena Dunham and Kevin Smith. Um, right now, the key difference between the two of them is that Lena is herself and that, uh, Kevin Smith uses himself as an excuse. Um, they're also two people who very much put themselves into their art and should be admired for that, but they should also take, anyone should take responsibility for when you do something that's not good and how you're going to fix it instead of, you know, blaming the critics as Kevin Smith seems to do. Lena Dunham seems to play along with the critics. She grew up in, I don't know, she grew up in Soho. She's, I don't know if that has anything to do with this, but I don't know. The press, I feel like sometimes the press loves her, and the internet cannot stand her. Um, so she has a new book out called Not That Kind of Girl, first book ever. I've started reading it. It's very good. It's very, very Lena. But um, so anyway, last week there was this whole controversy. So she was taking her book on the road and going on a big tour as authors do so they she goes and speaks at bookstores and then people go and buy the book so the sales do well and she was doing this thing where she was had auditions held for um for like local to get local artists to come and perform before her and gawker found out that apparently she wasn't paying them and a public outrage was born Oh my god, somebody didn't pay a performer. Look, that's, 
I mean, it's not good. I'm not saying it's right. It's just one of those things that's kind of like a part of the status quo that nobody knows about and that you can't really fix. I don't think anybody understands. Like, I mean, I've not don't call like I've been to many open mics and put time in, and you don't get paid for that. I mean, there's a lot of real shows that people don't get paid for. I don't know, there's a lot of comedians that get paid in chicken nuggets. And it's it's it sounds terrible, but it's one thing you learn as an adult that sometimes you do something not for the money, but because of the credit, because of what you're I don't know, like what it what it could do. Like it'd probably be cool. I'm sure these local artists, I don't know, they were expecting to get paid. She eventually decided to pay them because like I said, she knows how to handle her image. She's very good at with her PR, and she paid them. Good, good for you, Lena. But I'm sure none of them were expecting to get paid. Like, they, they, like she was holding auditions. It was a fun thing, and it would get their name, help get their name out there. And it's really cool that she was going and acknowledging local artists. Um, I don't think she should be condemned as much as she should. I don't know, I think we should praise people like Lena Dunham. They're very brave and cognizant of their mistakes and self-aware, which is something that people lack. Um, it's it's very, she's, I think she's a great person, and I think people give her crap too much. She's a good role model. Hashtag free Lena Dunham. <laughs> um, another public figure I think a lot about is Kevin Smith. Um like any pers- boy who was once 12 years old, Kevin Smith is somebody I once looked up to. Um, you know, like when you're my age, I think one of the early movies that might get you into movies, for me especially, was, you know, Kevin Smith's early view of skew movies, Clerks and Mallrats and Jay and Silent Bob, Strike Back and Chasing Amy. They're great stuff. It was an interconnected universe. Like, there was something really cool that Kevin Smith did. He just, he went outside of Hollywood and just, with barely any money, made a movie that was very truthful, honest, and really funny, and it made him rich, and a legend was pretty much born. Um, But now, like, Kevin Smith is, he's, I would say, much maligned, and I hate to say, but some of it is deserved. I still like Kevin Smith. When I hear him talk, I'm like, oh, he seems like a cool guy. But, like, it just seems more like he's gotten to this stage where he doesn't care anymore what people think about him, which is great because a lot of other directors like that now. I feel like Tarantino is in that stage, but he's still churning out great work. Um, you can, you should, look, you can not listen, say you're not going to listen to people and do whatever you want, but you should listen to your critics because... He thinks they're all trying to attack him, but maybe they're trying to help you. I don't know. I'm just trying to figure out, like, what... Like, there is a... Kevin Smith was, like, great with everybody, and then now it's just the opposite. Like, where did he go wrong? I think it's just... He was... When he first started making movies, he was ahead of the time, and now he's behind it. You know, he started out, like... And he portrayed this, like, suburban subculture of stoner nerds that you know like wasn't really like a big part of the mainstream at all and he made it seem really cool that was awesome but the thing is like 
Now he is. That's the norm. Those stoner nerds are now running the halls of Comic Con and the Nerdist podcast, and they now have like they now have power. They're not the oppressed anymore. But I feel like he's still kind of like, he's one of those nerds that kind of acts like it does. Lost my train of thought here. If you know what I'm trying to say, that's annoying. I saw Kevin Smith's new movie Tusk, and it was not. It was not good. No. Because, I don't know, he keeps saying that, like, this was a movie he really wanted to make more than anything. Really? Like, a movie about a guy that gets turned into a walrus, that was your passion project? And if it was your passion project, it didn't feel like one. It felt like something cobbled together very quickly in, in no amount of time. It was like two separate stories. The part I liked best about Tosco, the authentic part, was like one scene where they were podcasting. And I really wish that was the movie. I mean, I wish he just decided to, you know, go back to his roots and do like a Clerks-esque thing where it's just about, you know, like, it's just about these, like, kind of slacker guys who have a podcast because that's, like, the new... I don't... I think, like, that would be a very good modern update of Clerks without having to make a sequel to Clerks because I don't think that's that necessary. I would have loved to see that. I don't know what it would be called, but just a movie about two podcasters and their personal relationships and them smoking weed and stuff. By the way, I think Kevin Smith needs to stop smoking weed. I don't say that about very many people because normally doesn't impact them at all. Seth Rogen, I think, smokes just the right amount of weed because clearly he's still being Seth Rogen. But I really think that Kevin Smith has gotten lazy and he's gotten past this filter where he won't listen. Either he won't listen to anybody or nobody is telling him that he needs to chill. I don't know, that's another reason that people, why the media has turned on him is because he doesn't listen. Why, why should we? He's like gone and said, oh, screw film critics. Come on, we were your fans at one point. You used to make good stuff, dude. I don't, I mean, I don't know what the point of all that was. Just people put themselves into their art you should be very cognizant of the art you're making and know whether or not it's good because if you're saying that the films you make or the TV shows that you make are an extension of yourself, then you should work your best to make something good so we like that part of yourself. That makes sense. So yeah, those are some public figures. Uh, either way, I like both of them better than Mel Kipson. Uh, I don't think that his anti-Semitic meltdown was calculated move to never get him a good job in Hollywood again. Probably not. Um, so, I'll have a little analog this, uh, TV corner. That's analog this, get it? <laughs> That's where we talk about TV shows. Um, this week was the premiere of Mulaney, which is... The new sitcom on Fox, created by and starring, you guessed it, John Mulaney. Uh, seriously, John Mulaney is one of my favorite 
um, stand-up comics, like, ever. His two specials are the top part in New in Town. If you haven't watched slash listened to either of them, go do that right now. You should have no excuses. But either way, I've listened to both of them. It's, like, almost like I've listened to them backwards. Like, I can recite them by heart. They're wonderful. It's, like, music to me. So, naturally, I was really excited for this show. And, unfortunately, the press leading up to it was not good. Not good at all. So, I lowered my expectations before I watched it. But I still watched it because I love John Mulaney. And I want to see what it was. (sighs) And, unfortunately, it was not good. Well, I'll, I'll tell you why it wasn't good. But then I'll also tell you why that doesn't mean you shouldn't watch it or come back to it or lose faith in John Mulaney. I think it wasn't good because, well, I mean, like I said, I know the material from New in Town and the top part back and backwards and forwards. And most of the material from the show so far has been recycled from those two specials. So it's not familiar to me. So I don't know, maybe there'll be people that have never heard either of those specials and will get a good laugh out of it. Good for them. But it also, like, they might not. They might be missing out, and they should really go back and listen to the original specials because it takes the bite out of them. Okay, for instance, so show's been compared to Seinfeld, and that makes a lot of sense. Like, it basically is a Seinfeld clone or mutated twin, whatever you want to call it. But there's this uh, one part at the beginning. He's the first stand-up routine he's doing. It's actually kind of cool because it's like I thought it, was, it looked cool because it's like in it's not like it doesn't look like he's in a comedy club. It's just him doing stand-up like on the actual set of his living room, but it's like darkened out. That was interesting. But anyway, he's telling this one joke about one time when he's going through the subway at two in the morning and he's kind of new to New York and doesn't really understand that he's still very innocent. And he sees this woman starting to run quickly. So the first thing he assumes is, oh, she's running for the train. So he starts running after her. And then she starts running quicker. And then it dawns on him that she is not running from the train. She's running from him. And then he uses the word rape in that. And sometimes talking about rape normally is not funny. But he uses it in such a way. Maybe it's shock value because he just seems like the nicest, most unassuming guy. But he does a whole thing saying, he's just talking about like, oh, like she wasn't running for the train. She was running for me because I'm an adult and adults rape each other kind of a lot. That's what he says. I probably butchered the impression of him, but he says it and it's really funny. But for TV, they had to change the word from rape to murder And the joke just loses its bite. It loses its cadence. I don't know. The word rape is one syllable. It fits in the joke. But it also, I don't know. There's just something about that that makes more sense. That he's just like somebody who's still afraid of being kidnapped. And yet he's also a threat to women. And just replacing that one word ruins the joke. Like Fox is like pretty great right now. um, When it comes to TV. And they have a lot of really fucking funny shows. But, like, I feel like they weren't giving him all the... Delaney all the freedom that he should have had. Okay, and also the rest of the show. So, like Seinfeld, 
kind of integrates his material into situations. Not only does it take the bite out of it, but it makes it all artificial. Like, there's a scene where Mulaney and character named Jane, who's played by SNL's Nassim Pedrad, are in a waiting room. And they both start, they're having a conversation with each other. And you realize that, like, both the things they're saying to each other are, like, stand-up routines, but they try to put it into conversation. And the only problem is that it's just stand-up verbatim, and they don't try and put it into conversation. Because, yes, the best stand-up is like a conversation, but it's a conversation somebody's having with themselves. So if you try to make two people interact with stand-up quotes, it sounds really uncomfortable and artificial. Like, I mean, on Seinfeld, like I said, he would put his stand-up in, but he would break it up a little and, like, have people interject in it. Like, you'd create rapport. It might also be because there was a pilot. There still wasn't chemistry between the characters. I don't know. That was really disappointing. But there's still hope. I Because there were a few scenes that were actually original. I mean, not just new jokes, new situations. And I happened to enjoy. I kind of liked uh, Martin Short's character. I'm a Martin Short fan in general. He says, he says, J. Mulele. He calls John Mulaney. He thinks his name is J. Mulele for whatever reason. But I just keep saying that over and over again. It sounds funny. And there's one scene with Elliot Gould that I happen to find hilarious. It's kind of crazy that Elliot Gould is on this show, but I just thought that scene was really funny. And back to the Seinfeld's comparison where it will work, it's hard to, like the show had a lot going for it because it had the hottest comic in America and it was being compared to one of the best sitcoms of all time. But just the, why go back and watch the pilot of Seinfeld in the first season? It's not good. That's the reason we still watch it now is because we know what it leads to. It was almost canceled at the time. That's how poorly it was doing. It's like that for most sitcoms, too. The first season of Parks and Rec was a wreck. The first season of The Office was, was just didn't have the heart that the rest of the seasons had. Recently, the first season of Brooklyn Nine-Nine was not that great, but over time it got more confident in itself, and it got really good. There are exceptions to this, like Broad City and stuff, but... I just know the talent that's behind this show. Um, I just know one of the writers is also Julie Klausner, who hosts one of my favorite podcasts, How Was Your Week? And she's really funny. So, like, there's Mulaney and there's her, and there's lots of talent behind the show and enough people that, like, once they figure out what they're doing, I think they will make something great. And I've also heard down the road that soon they're going to start doing new material, and I cannot wait to hear new Mulaney material that I've never heard before. I don't know how to, like, what to compare that to, but, like, that's, like, consider your favorite musician, like, hearing a new song from the first time. That's that's what's going to be, like, hearing a new song, but in stand-up form from John Mulaney. So, yeah, I don't, they, need to, they need to make it a little less artificial. Um, they're using an old format. Uh, they should make it feel like a classic, and, like I said, not artificial. Maybe get rid of that goofy drug dealer character they're clearly trying to make their Kramer because he's sort of just annoying but John Mulaney don't hold this against me you're awesome and I don't know what's going to happen in the show if it's going to get another season or not um what happens basically is if it's really good it will keep going I don't know how well it will do in the ratings but it will be enough to get Mulaney cred for life he'll be able to do whatever the hell he wants syndication stuff like that and if it gets canceled after season one, it will not be a detriment to John Mulaney because he'll do 
he should go do what Louis did after Lucky Louis got canceled and just hit the road again and become the, the true king of stand-up in America. So either way, it's a win-win for him. Having your own TV show can never necessarily hurt you unless you're Rob Schneider and your show is Rob, you know, the one that had Rob upside down, exclamation point, exclamation point. That was on the air. All right, everybody, I'm going to take a quick break now. And when we come back, we're going to review Gone Girl. podcast everybody it's time for real talk um where we review a movie from the week uh this week i'm going to do a review of david fincher's gone girl um now i've decided this movie is very hard to talk about without you know spoiling everything um and i already did a review of the movie on my website it's mostly spoiler free so if you haven't seen gone girl yet and you're curious to read about it before you check it out i would say go to my website and read the review instead because i want this to be a spoiler filled review i want to be able to talk about almost everything from this movie like little things that you really couldn't talk about in a review and even if you're like i don't care about spoilers trust me this is a movie you should go in with as little knowledge as possible you'll still enjoy it if you know the story but it will make it way more fun if you know nothing Starting from here, I will say, spoiler alert. Spoilers for Gone Girl. Are you listening? If you're, Are you listening right now? Okay, well, if you're listening and you haven't seen the movie yet and you don't want spoiled for you, then you're an idiot. Okay, let's get to it. Um, so, most whoever's listening has probably seen Gone Girl, so you know... That uh, it's about a couple, Amy and Nick Dunn, played by Ben Affleck and Rosamund Pike. It's a cool name. It's an awesome name. I don't know what it means, but it's a cool name. Um, and one day Nick comes home to find that his wife is missing. And he is suddenly being accused by everybody of murdering her with very little evidence. But based on the way he acts and based on what little evidence there is, um, kind of seems like he could have done it. Um so this movie is split up in two halves. Uh, the first half, it basically seems like, oh, Nick is definitely, he definitely killed his wife and hid her somewhere in the state of Missouri where I don't want to know where. And then there's the second half, and in between that is an incredible twist where you find out not only is Amy still alive, but she has concocted the most insane scheme ever where she's basically faked her own kidnapping and has found a way to frame her husband with all the hours of suburban housewife boredom she has read basically about how to stage um a kidnapping and she's going to lure him and maybe kill herself and get her husband thrown in jail and then on the electric chair as punishment for cheating on her. Amy Dunn is a woman you don't want to mess with. But um you know it's like what's really awesome about this movie is it's a it's a great 
thriller. Let me just talk about that twist also. Just not just what the twist was, but how it was presented was beautiful. And I was thinking if the movie had ended, I don't know how I don't know how far into it, but the movie had ended with that montage of Amy showing everything that Amy did to prepare for her faux kidnapping. If it ended there, I would have been satisfied. That would have been a complete movie with a message and something to say. But then we were we got another hour, and normally that might sound like a bad thing, but it was a little bit of a blessing here. Uh, the second half is really interesting. Both halves are great. But you get, like, two different Afflecks in this movie and two different Rosamund Pikes. The movie's all about duplicity. David Fincher just loves to talk about how everything is not as it seems from... I would say, like, the best examples of that are, like, I don't know, Fight Club and Zodiac and The Social Network. I'm going to pretend that he didn't direct The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, but... Um, so basically, all these movies are kind of about, like, people have... Like I was talking about earlier, people have one face in public and an image that they control, and then they are something completely else behind closed doors. Like, you just have this, like, you see it in the first half, what we're seeing is, like, the public face, like, this incredibly happy married couple, where could it all go wrong? And then you start to realize, oh, that's where it all went wrong. And we're manipulated, we're tricked. We hear about Amy's diary, and that she faced all these horrible abuses, and then you find out that she's a freaking liar, so you don't know what's true anymore. And it's crazy, you're wrapping your head, like, it's a movie, like, does not... This movie is like, what is the definition of an adult and mature thriller? Because not only is it smart, but like, it doesn't even give you time to think. It makes you like process so many things at once. It makes you a better movie goer. Because like, at the same time that you're like, wait, what's going on? You're also f stunned at what you're seeing. Like, you did, you better catch up, buddy. Because this is not a Transformers movie. You know what? So, like, you could see this movie in two separate ways. You could see it as a pure piece of pulpy entertainment, or you could see it as, like, a real look at society, at marriage and gender roles, America. I I think it's both. It's both an entertaining thriller on this. Like, like I said, this movie's about surface appearances and what's below the surface. Surface appearance, an entertaining thriller. Below the surface, condemnation of everything in society. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. But um, I was doing, like, a little bit of reading about it. I still don't, like, I have a lot of, like, thoughts of, like, what things mean. I saw a really interesting reading on Film Drunk where Vince Mancini points out how the movie begins and ends with the same shot of just Rosamund Pike looking at the camera while lying down and... Over that, there's narration of Ben Affleck saying he would just love to crack his wife's skull open, which at first sounds, like, very gruesome, but what he really means is he wants to look inside and see what she's thinking. So, uh, Film Drunk was saying that what that could mean was that this whole movie was basically, like, a paranoid male fantasy, a daydream of just him laying there looking at his wife and wondering what's going on in her head, and what he's thinking is... She's plotting to murder him. They both seem to think... I think that's just really... That's an interesting idea. I don't like... I don't normally like the idea when movies just end and they're like, oh, it's all a dream. But that would if that is how it really was, that would be saying something. That's a bold statement. I mean, they both thought that the other was trying to kill them. 
And I guess the whole movie's saying that marriage makes you insanely paranoid. I know nothing. I've never been married. Marriage is hard work. And that's what they say in this movie as well, that marriage is hard work. This movie's also about appearances in terms of the media. And it's just like that it's all, it's just a big game. All of it. I just thought this movie portrayed the 24-hour news cycle very excellently. There's this one, like, character who hosts a show on CNN on there who's played, the character is played by Missy Pyle, and I'm 100% sure she's doing a Nancy Grace impression. It's impossible that she's not, and she just keeps stirring the pot of this situation, just stirring and stirring. And, like, you kind of realize that, like, it's Nick trying to get people back on his side. And what's so wonderful about Ben Affleck's performance is that, like, in the first half of the movie, you think this guy definitely did it and is lying. And the story is so much smarter than that. Than to just be like, oh, like, he did it. No, he didn't do it. <laughs> um, obviously, he didn't do it. But he, like, has to be trained to talk to the media. Tyler Perry, yes, Tyler Perry. He's good in this, too. Comes in and has to, like, train him to talk on camera and to show emotions and basically, if you say a word a certain way, people will think you're a murderer. And I think that's fascinating. Gillian Flynn, who, uh, Gillian, Gillian, but she wrote this. She used to be a writer for Entertainment Weekly. So glad to see that her time there led her to distrust the media greatly. Um, yeah, Ben Affleck's great in this. Rosamund Pike is amazing. Um, there's been a lot of, like, mixed thoughts on gender roles about this movie. Some people are saying it's misogynistic. Some people are saying it's feminist. I mean, can we say it's neither? Can we say it's just a movie? But either way, it's definitely not misogynistic. I think what people are saying that the misogynistic tendencies lie because, I don't know, it's about a woman who accuses people of rape and all these other things. And that's a terrible thing that there are men who say that, oh, like, women can just easily make up rape allegations, which is not, that's not true. It's a horrible thing that happens in this country. But, and in the, around the world, obviously. But I don't want to get that too into that here. But I think the idea that a movie is sexist because the villain is a woman is itself sexist. I don't think there's anything wrong with having a female villain. I mean, this is an ambiguous movie and both the characters do things wrong. But here is somebody who slices Doogie Hauser's throat with a box cutter while he is inside of her that's that is a fucked up person right there i'm sorry and i think it's kind of cool that there's a there's a ter female character like this I, jillian flynn has also gone out saying that it's like that the idea that people are criticizing her for making this amy dunn character it's like why why should all women just be good and nice um she can i think that's a, that's a cool thing to be a villain i have this, I've said this many times before, maybe my writing, maybe on the podcast, that oftentimes a movie is only as good as its villain, and Gone Girl has a great villain. Like, Amy Dunn is going to go down in history. She's a frightening face. She doesn't have a cool costume or anything. She has a lot of disguises, but she just has this cold stare. David Edelstein described her as, like, a living mannequin. And just like, you, real, she's just like Affleck, like... I that's like that's probably why they didn't make a good married couple is that they're both kind of sociopaths 
no empathy. You never, you don't know what's going on in her head either because we're in the middle of Affleck's third possible daydream. We don't know either. But she's probably going to go down as one of the best villains. I don't know, there's something about cutting somebody's throat with a box cutter. Can't beat that, just like Gus Fring. Um, it ends on such an interesting note, too. I thought it was going to end, like, with them double-crossing her and putting her in jail. And the movie's, it's not as, it's not a cut-and-dry thriller, obviously. And it ends with them having to continue. He has, he's basically now trapped in this marriage. And the horrible part is that Amy kind of won. She got the baby. She got him back. She got him to pay attention to her. He can't, and if he gets out of the marriage, then everybody's going to start accusing him of being a murderer again. Just everything's a game. Media's a game. Marriage is a game. <laughs> uh, I, I think what I'm trying to say mostly about Gone Girl is go see it, but don't take a date to it. It's not. It's definitely not a date movie. Fincher's Fincher's amazing, guys. Like, I think like. He's, like, one of the first filmmakers that really makes digital filmmaking look like art. Like, every frame just looks so crisp and beautiful. Like, I feel like everything's just kind of drained of color in a way that really benefits it. It's dark and gritty, but it's not pointless. He should direct a superhero movie, or he should just direct everything. I have a one final thing. I have a prediction that this movie made me think, so this movie made me think a lot of Silence of the Lambs. For a lot of reasons, something about the way it was shot, the story, the setting, it made me think of Silence of the Lambs, a movie that, surprisingly, won Best Picture in 1991, swept the Oscars, it got, like, the big five, it got Best Picture, Best Director, Actor, Actress, and Screenplay. The only two other movies to do that are It Happened One Night and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I think Gone Girl might do something similar in that league. It's definitely going to have a lot of Oscar nominations for it. I have a good feeling... That this is going to be, sorry boyhood, but I think this is the year of Fincher. I think he's long overdue. And I think it's taken a while. People are now starting to realize how much we cherish him. I think the pain over the fact that he wasn't, that he didn't win for the social network is still there. So I think he could be, he might win Best Director. And maybe they'll throw him Best Picture too. And you know, the Academy loves Affleck. And they still love that comeback story, so he could win Best Actor. Rosamund Pike's amazing. She probably should win Best Actress. And the writing's top-notch. Jillian Flynn got, wrote, adapted her own screenplay. I they could win for all those things. This is just a thought. We'll see what else comes along this year. I haven't seen Inherent Vice yet. I've just watched the trailer 50,000 times. But guys, this could, be, this could be the year that Tyler Perry gets nominated for an Oscar. Those are thoughts on Gone Girl and need to collect more and maybe talk about it again because there's a lot to say maybe see it again sometime all right i'm going to take a quick break uh we'll be right back and we're back everybody all right, uh, this is going to wrap it up for the podcast this week. Uh, tune in next time, hopefully very soon, if not next week. Um, it's been a weird transition back. I'm going to try and do these things as often as possible and maybe find some guests who will talk about, who will talk on the show with me, which would be great. Uh, next time, I don't know what I'm going to review. 
it probably won't be Alexander and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day because that looks like it's going to ruin my one of my favorite childhood books. But uh, if you listen this whole way through and made it this far, thank you very much. Um, as always, you can find my writing at realdealblog.com. That's real, R-E-E-L, dealblog.com. And you can also find their old episodes of the podcast. And uh, subscribe to us on iTunes, please. Um, and this will just drop automatically, and you can listen to it, or better yet, ignore it. Uh, thank you very much for listening, and as always, keep it real. <laughs>